I would sum up what we are learning as a church in this way. We are learning that the gospel is for Christians. Just as what uh, Jeff and Michelle shared with us this morning. That the gospel is not just for our conversion. And not just for our future entrance to heaven. But that it is the power of God for our Christian life. For our church, for our, our families, for our life in this world. Sad to say that the common view, the popular view, the majority view in the church today is that the gospel is just a means by which God has achieved our redemption. And it is the means by which he will achieve our glorification. But in the meantime, uh, sanctification is our work. So we believe for many years that indicatives are for non-Christians the imperatives, the commands are for us. The gospel is for unbelievers. And as Michelle said, the law is for me. It is a great error that has uh, profound and countless implications for our lives. One of them is someone who subscribes to this view. There is a lack of spiritual power in his or her life. Christianity is reduced to a non-miraculous life, empty of spiritual vitality and renewal. There is lack of strength, a lack of grace-induced infused power in the person's life to live a life worthy of Christ. There is a lack of renewal in one's heart and their relationships with others. Hearts aren't being refreshed. Relationships with one another aren't being revitalized. There is lack of spiritual power in one's relationships with God and with one another. And then thirdly, with this mentality, the Christian life is reduced to uh, rules and regulations. Reduced to a, a logical, a rational life that is regulated and managed. That has not lived by the power to the Holy Spirit. Christian life over time becomes drudgery. Uh, Going to read the Bible, going to pray, or going to care group or church is uh, is similar to going to the gym. Uh, My mindset of going to the gym is um, I I, I know it's good that I go. I should go. If I don't go, I feel guilty. And I know once I get there, I'll be glad I went. But sitting here and watching the Lakers, eating my tropical Skittles, I, I don't want to change. I don't want to uh, drive. I don't want to um, sweat and then shower afterwards. <laughs> All of that, but I go out of guilt or I go out of shame. I go out of duty. All of this is the heart of many Christians. They read the Bible and pray um, out of those reasons, out of duty or guilt, not out, of, not out for the Lord. And um, the Bible tells us we've been discovering that all good, de- all good deeds done out of wrong motivation does not please the Lord, does not honor, honor God. I mean, even the world understands this dynamic. I saw this video clip uh, weeks ago 
Uh, there was this guy, a professional autograph seller. What he does is he gets autographs from famous people, and then he sells them online for a profit. He was at LAX waiting for James Cameron. He had an a, a avatar uh, poster already. And when Cameron came out, uh, Cameron knew this was a professional autograph seeker. Wouldn't sign, wouldn't sign the poster. And the guy got all angry and got all indignant and said, why would you not sign this autograph? I spent $15 to watch your movie, to support your movie. I watched it for you. And Cameron shot back, you didn't even watch it for me. You watched it for yourself. I don't owe you anything. I'm not obligated to you in any way. You watch that movie for yourself and not for me. But same thing for the Christian life. If we are motivated to do these things out of duty or drudgery or guilt, we're not doing it for Christ. We're not reading the Bible for Christ. You're not coming to church for Christ. You're doing it for yourself. And if your Christian life is categorized by that, then Christ will say, just like he, said to the, he will say to those in Matthew 7, where people will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not do works of miracles, cast out demons? Do we not do all these righteous deeds for you? And Christ will say, no, you didn't do it for me. I never knew you. Away from me, you workers of iniquity. But far too many professing Christians, they are blind to this reality. And they are, they experience the worst consequence of this mindset of gospel is for unbelievers and for Christians, it's the law. We cooperate with Christ to, to obey the scriptures, that it is our work and not Christ's work. Possibly the worst consequence of this mindset is that as the person stubbornly refuses to repent and trust the gospel for their lives, God gives them over. God gives them over to their sensual sins due to their stubborn pride. Because of their resolute refusal to trust in the gospel, God gives them over because of their pride to their sins. We, we see this dynamic uh, in the Old Testament with uh, Moses and Pharaoh. God reaches out to Pharaoh through Moses with miracles, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. He is proud, he is stubborn, he refuses to submit to God. So what does God do? God gives him over to his sins, and God hardens his heart. We see this with Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees will say, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these miracles unless he was sent from God. And yet, because of their pride, they, would, they refused to submit and repent and trust in the gospel. So Christ gave them over to their sins. In John 12, he talked to them no longer. We see the same thing in Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. Three distinct times, Acts 13, Acts 18, Acts 28, Paul, knowing the priority of the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, would go to the city at Corinth and preach the gospel to Jews and they would stubbornly refuse to repent. They would, they would reject it outright. And then Paul would say, my hands are clean. Your blood is in your own hands. And he would literally go next door to the Gentiles and preach the gospel and revival will break out. In Acts 18, same thing happened. He would go to the synagogue and they refused to hear Paul. They rejected this message of grace. They held to their law and their legalism and Paul would go, I'm innocent. Of your, I'm not responsible for your souls. He would go to Gentiles and preach the gospel. Revival will break out. Same thing in Acts 28. 
possibly the worst consequence is our pride, our spiritual pride is nourished and fed and, and that grows under this mindset. Living the Christian life apart from daily repentance, without radically and wholly trusting in the gospel, feeds and grows oh, this, um, this insidious monster, this, this our great malady, our great enemy, monster named pride. You know, I use this word a lot because I, f- I find it so often in my own heart. Our great problem is our, our own pride. You know, pride is, um, you, know, you go to a doctor and the doctor says, oh, you have a mild case of the flu. You know, you know you've got uh, a you know, cold and our hearts don't sink. Or a doctor tells us, you've got cancer. You've got cancer. And our hearts greatly sink. Well, likewise, with this diagnosis from the Holy Spirit, we find that as we open the Bible and discover the gospel, what it reveals to us, the MRI reveals to us that we have cancer in our souls. And its name is pride. Why is it cancer? Because it is the one sin God specifically declares as the one sin that he hates. God hates pride. Psalm 10.4, in the pride of his face, the wicked do not seek him. All his thoughts is there is no God. Proverbs 8.13, I hate pride and arrogance. James 4.6, God is opposed to the proud. Pride is anti-God. Think about this. This view of the gospel, this distorted Compromise you the gospel. This adjusted gospel that is only for unbelievers feeds and nourishes pride which antagonizes God and provokes him to anger where he is against you and he is against me. What is necessary is a heartfelt repentance of this view. Repentance of this view that we can live the Christian life apart from the gospel. And that the gospel is for us John Calvin said this, without the gospel, everything is useless and vain. Without the gospel, we are not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches is poverty, all wisdom folly, strength is weakness, all justice is under the condemnation of God. But by the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God, brothers of Jesus Christ, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, the fools wise, the sinner justified, the desolate comforted, the doubting sure, and slaves free. It is the power of God for the salvation of those, all those who believe. This is why the gospel is so important, practically because nothing destroys pride like the gospel. Nothing suffocates, destroys, deals a death blow to pride at the gospel of free grace for our salvation and for our Christian lives. Nothing but the gospel gives life and power to Christians. I know, I am convinced that Paul was convinced of this. 
Paul knew this and Paul believed this. That is why he wrote in Romans 1.15, I am eager to journey all the way to Rome to Christians and risk persecution, risk, risk arrest, and risk martyrdom. I'm, I want to do this. Why? I want to preach the gospel to you. Romans 1.15 in 1 Corinthians 2.2, when he went to the Corinthians, he said, I resolved to know nothing with you. I have just but one message for you Christians of Christ and Him crucified. I have no new truth. I have no Gnostic knowledge. I have no mystery or hidden knowledge that you do not already know. I want to come to you. But the power for the Christian life is the gospel, and I want to deliver the gospel to you. First Thessalonians 2.9, he talks about how he went to Thessalonians, and he was with them for over six months. And he got a job to support, him, support himself so that he would not be a burden to the Thessalonians. And he was running away from persecution. And yet he labored there for over six months. Why? That he might proclaim the gospel of God to these dear Christians. This is Paul's conviction. And this is what Paul, this is what Paul practiced. Colossians 1.28, he said, we proclaim him. We proclaim Jesus Christ. So our message is not facts, it's not information, it's not knowledge. Our message is the logos of God, is Jesus Christ. And so in light of our study in 2 Timothy 4.2, brother said last week, Mike Sam was saying, James, your job description changed. And I said, wow, you're listening, right? Praise God. Thank the Lord for you, brother. You actually listen to my messages. Yes, my job description changed. Previously, my understanding was, long as I preach the Bible, my job is done. Long as I take a portion of Scripture, get a test, get a passage, and faithfully explicate its meaning to the congregation, my job is done. Right? And go home and sleep and play ball and without guilt. But now my job description has changed. It's preach the law, preach the gospel, preach Christ. So from the passage, from, from that text, I am to preach Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson said in his book, Scandalous, The Cross and Resurrection of Jesus Christ, nothing is more central to the Bible than Jesus' death and resurrection. The entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Attempts to make sense of the Bible that do not give profound insight and thought to integrating the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are doomed to failure. Again, attempts to make sense of the Bible without connecting it the cross is doomed to failure. This past week, Pastor John Coe emailed me this link to a Q&A with Pastor John Piper. And the Q&A, the question is, does every sermon have to be about Jesus Christ? Right. How important is it for a preacher to preach Christ from every text of Scripture? So when I got that link, I didn't know if John was going to refute me or agree with me. So I had to click on that link with a, Good amount of trepidation in my heart. And I clicked on it, and first of all, I praised God because He was saying, that's what He said. Preachers, whenever they're preaching in the Bible, must somehow make it plain that this is a Christian sermon. It has Christian roots, and the glory of Christ is at stake. Every sermon should somehow communicate that this is all based on and aiming towards the work of Christ and the glory of Christ. My first response was joy. My second response was, why didn't they make this Q&A two weeks ago? It would help me, save me a lot of problems. Right? Save me a lot of heartache. Right? Every sermon is to be 
preaching the gospel. Somehow or some way, preaching Christ. Now, where did Pastor Piper get this from? Where do I get this from? I get it from our text this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Here is Paul's final commands to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he rattles off five imperatives. The dominant imperative is preach the word, ton logon, the gospel message. A testimony about our Lord. The word of truth. The word of Christ. Preach the cross. And the rest of the uh, imperatives, the commands, are subsumed under that dominant uh, imperative. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And here in this verse, we see a mini philosophy of ministry of Paul. A mini summation of Paul's method of ministry his uh, pattern of sound words, his approach to gospel ministry. Summed up in this way, his ministry was one of gospel preaching and gospel application, undergirded by gospel suffering. So for Paul to preach the gospel and to apply the gospel, it required suffering on his part. And that's the be ready in season and out of season. It's not just the idea of being prepared but it's the idea of perseverance. Year in and year out, preach the gospel. For the long haul, don't be a short timer. Right? Minister the gospel to the end, and he's saying, look, I have kept the faith. The whole of my ministry, here I am at the finish line, and I did not give up by the grace of God. I did not capitulate to the threats of the legalists, the Pharisees, Judaizers, who try to entice me back to the law, right? back to... Righteousness before God through works of, the, works of the flesh. No, I kept the faith to the end. In, ear in, ear out, preached the gospel. That's the suffering that Paul endured. But in the ministry of the word, his method was gospel preaching and application of the gospel. Preach the gospel and then apply the gospel. This was his uh, MO, and we see it in his letters. Uh, you see the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11. What is it? It's, and there's one imperative in, in 11 chapters. One command. It's all indicative. What is it? It's the gospel of Christ. After 11 chapters of God's gospel, the cross, chapter 12, verse 1, he applies the gospel. Therefore, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. In view of first 11 chapters of God's gospel, what he has done for us, he applies the gospel to Christian life. Same thing in Colossians, first two chapters. It's high Christology. It's all about the preeminence of Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, since you've been raised with Christ, we sang this song this morning, since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your minds now on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Colossians 3, 5, therefore put to death Whatever is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Same thing with Ephesians, first three chapters. It's all of the gospel message. He preaches the gospel, he preaches the word. And then chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so this is what Paul is doing. Preach the word, preach the gospel, and then he applies the gospel. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. 
and with that prepositional phrase, how to do it with, with complete patience and instruction. This is uh, Paul's great charge uh, to pastors. Paul's charge to Timothy, and now Paul's charge to me. After having proclaimed to him, charging him with preaching the gospel, and then he calls him to preach the gospel in season and out of season with the final three imperatives, he applies the gospel for us. Now, pause here for a second. And uh, here he answers um, that, that the question that comes up every time the gospel is preached. Every time. So much so, if this question is not raised, you have to wonder if you're really preaching the gospel. It's almost a litmus test of whether one is really preaching the gospel or not. And what is his question? The question is, if we're set free, then shall we live in sin? Why obey? Why grow in holiness? What's the point of righteousness? What's the point of going to church? And what's the point of spiritual disciplines? If grace abounds, then shall we abound in sin? That is the one question, or the, those kinds of questions always arise when the gospel is preached. The central question is essentially, uh, how then should we live? Right? In light of the gospel, in light of this promise of free grace, how are we to live the Christian life? How are we to understand holiness and obedience, spiritual disciplines? And um, I'm going to paint with broad strokes here. Uh, Pastor Dan will give a detailed explanation in one of the CBI classes on a Saturday morning in months and years to come. For, sun- for Sunday morning, though, broad strokes here and just uh, summarize it with three, three common responses to this question. The first, first view is um, we are not under the law. We are free. Because God has saved us and has forgiven us, we can live any way we want. We can live in sin and live for ourselves. It's antinomianism, anti-namos, Greek for law, anti-law. Christians are not under the law anymore, so we are free. And we can live according to the desires of our hearts. What we do in our lives has no relevance or significance to our profession of faith. Long as we're sincere in believing in Christ, long as we say the words, pray the prayer, walk down the aisle, get baptized, get enrolled into a church, we're going to heaven. How we live does not matter. This is the, the cheap grace, easy believism uh, that, is, that is pervasive in Christianity in America today. This idea of, of uh, living in sin is okay. Holiness, discipleship, obedience is an option for Christians. If you want a deeper life, you want greater blessing, if you want to be used by God, then you know, be holy. Read the Bible. Go to church. You know, pray. But if you don't, then it's okay. You know, you're still saved. The second view is, the opposite, opposite side of the spectrum, is go back to the Old Testament law. Right? Back to Judaism. Right? Christians are now, to please God, are to submit to all of the laws of the Old and New Testament and the laws that are in our consciences by, the whole, by God, by God's common grace. 
So the Christian life is up to us, up to our will, to obey these scriptures. And more we obey, more we grow in our, in our walks, and that's God's will for us. So we are responsible and culpable for all of the laws of the scriptures. And that's what um, was a controversy at the churches at Galatia. There was Judaizers who were calling Christians back to circumcision, to obey the Old Testament. And Paul was saying, you don't know what you're doing. If your motivation, circumcision in of itself is nothing. But if your motivation is to be approved before God by works of the flesh, then you are, you are responsible for all of the law. You're going back to Egypt. You're going back to slavery. And he had uh, strong words for these Judaizers. He called them dogs. He wished that they would go ahead and emasculate themselves. Because what they're doing is they're preaching a whole other gospel, a heteros gospel. And he pronounced anathema, judgment on anyone, even an angel of God, who would seek to be righteous before God through the works of the flesh and not through the cross. So I guess you guess by now I'm not for options one or two, right? That's fairly clear. The third option, the third view that I believe is that we are set free from the law of the Old Testament, and we are set free from the law, lowercase law, in our consciences. And now we are under the law of Christ. We are under the law of grace. Romans 6.14, you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Romans 8, 1 and 2, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see that contrast? 1 Corinthians 9, 21, We are not under the law of Moses, but we are now under the law of Christ. And in Galatians 3, 23 through 27, we, have, we talked about this verse Versus for the past several weeks, how the law was a guardian, it was a tutor, a temporary caretaker. But now that Christ has come, we are not under the law any longer. But we are under the reality of Jesus Christ. Um, this is why, you know, for Luther, I think for any gospel Christian, you will get uh, heat from both sides because you sound like an antinomian and a legalist. Right? Because the message of the gospel is both that, not either or. Right? So to some, you preach the gospel, you'll sound like an antinomian. And to others, you'll sound like a legalist. But the truth is, it's both and. We are set free from slavery. We are set free from the law. But we are set free to be under Christ, to be a slave of righteousness. Mike Bolimore, a sovereign grace pastor, said this, the New Testament exhortations to holy living exist within an evangelical framework that differs markedly from the Mosaic law with its blessings and curses. Rather than labeling these calls to holy living, quote, law, Paul views them as exhortations to live in a manner consistent with the gospel. They are imperatives that flow out of the gospel the Christocentric, grace-based exhortation of the New Testament 
is, are miles apart from the Mosaic law with its threats and curses. Now, for our remaining time, I didn't get to the sermon on first hour. I don't expect to get through it second hour as well. But to highlight to you the four key differences between law preaching and gospel preaching. So what Paul is doing, he's preaching the gospel, and then he applies the gospel, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. What he is doing here is markedly different than Old Testament or legal or law preaching, legalistic preaching. The first difference is that law preaching is focused on works, while gospel preaching, application of the gospel is focused on faith. Romans 4, 1 through 6, let me summarize it here. Paul contrasts works and faith. Anyone works, the righteousness is given as a wage. It's what is due him. But he earlier said in Romans 3, no man is righteous, not even one. No one seeks after God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he says in Romans 4, but to anyone who trusts in God, His faith is credited to him as righteousness. So for Paul, the issue is works versus faith. He preaches not to pound with the law, but to build up faith through the gospel. As the gospel is preached, it builds our faith. It causes us to repent not of external sins and external righteousness. It causes us to repent from sins of the heart, from unbelief to to faith. To not believing, not trusting, not relying. In our hearts, the gospel calls us to trust in Christ. Now, some have said, uh, some have said this. You preach the gospel in this way, and people live in sin, People who profess this gospel live in sin. Therefore, this message of the gospel for Christians is wrong. That's that's faulty reasoning. The book of James uh, highlights this. Those who say, I believe in the gospel for the Christian life, yet, yet they live in sin. They don't produce good fruit. They don't abound in good works. What's the conclusion according to the book of James? It's not the fault is not with the message. It's not the gospel is weak or powerless. The issue is it's a false profession. Right? Your faith is that specific kind of faith defined as a dead faith, a spurious faith, a demonic faith. Even demons believe God and shudder. It's not a true faith, because true faith always works always produces a transformed life if it's trusting in the gospel. Anyone who says, I believe in the gospel for salvation and sanctification, and yet they live lives, they walk in the darkness, he or she is a liar. He or she is deceived. They are dead in their faith. It's not living in true faith. Law preaching is focused on externals that bypasses faith Gospel preaching is focused on the heart. Recalling people to repent from unbelief to faith. And through that faith, producing a life of righteousness that will glorify Christ. 
Secondly, law preaching is focused on behavior. Gospel preaching is focused on the heart and then behavior. Law preaching is all about uh, whitewashed tombs. Clean the outside of the cup. Doesn't matter what the inside is like. Gospel preaching doesn't care about the outside. Gospel doesn't care about whether you're cursing or not. The focus is not to change or modify your behavior, your speech, your actions. The gospel is concerned about your heart, the wellspring of your life, the source of everything. And gospel seeks to break through and transform the inner man so that it will travel from your heart to your head to your hands. It will ultimately affect behavior. But it will do so through the heart and not bypassing the heart. Thirdly, um, legal preaching is all about blessings and curses. Do this and don't do this because of blessings and curses. Uh, Go to Deuteronomy 28, the second giving of the law of Moses to the people of Israel. God closes that section by telling them and reminding them of his promises to those who obey and to those who disobey. He devotes 14 verses on blessings and then 53 verses on curses to those who disobey the word of God. To those who obey, law preaching is, Deuteronomy 28, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, if you are careful to do all the commandments I command you today, God will set you high above all the nations. These blessings shall come upon you, overtake you. You'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the field. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. Your basket, your kneading bowl will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in, blessed when you go out. You'll be blessed your whole generations. To those who disobey, God promised this. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, All these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city, cursed in the field. The fruit of your womb be cursed. Your livestock will be cursed. You'll be cursed when you come in, cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustrations. And these curses will overtake you. So law prompts you to obey entices you with blessings and threatens you with curses. That's legal preaching. That's legalistic preaching. Gospel preaching is. Look at all all what God has done for you. The reason to obey is not what God will do or will not do. It's what God has done. And what has God done? He connects it to the gospel. We'll speak about this next week. And he'll point to the cross This is what God has done for you in Christ. Given you His Son because of His love for you. And that is what motivates you to obey. That is what is to compel you to respond, to live a life of holiness. And so the final one is like it. Law preaching is motivated by fear of judgment and condemnation. Fear of judgment and condemnation. The Bible talks about how we are once slaves to the law. 
and we were filled with fear. You know, I kind of liken it. I'm inspired by uh, Jeff's Rashid Wallace illustration. Um, you know, the NBA has this thing called 10-day contracts, right? So someone's injured, they go to the, uh, the developmental league, and they choose a player for a 10-day contract. And that must, it'd be so hard to get a 10-day contract. So you get a few minutes in the game, and you miss a shot, miss two shots, you miss a, de- a defensive assignment, or you don't, you don't pass the ball well, they pull you, right? It must be so hard to play sports with that kind of pressure on you. Well, that's what it was under the law, right? So under the law, you, you, you sin and you fail to obey God's word. You're not pulled from the league. You're pulled from God's covenant family. You're abandoned. You're forsaken. You are cursed. Not just you, but your family, your future generations, all because of your sins before a thrice holy God. So under the law, you're motivated by fear. Fear of being forsaken, fear of condemnation, fear of judgment. But now, we are under the law of Christ. We are under the care of the Holy Spirit. And so now, we are motivated by the love and kindness of God through Jesus Christ. We are not slaves to fear because we're slaves of the law. We are sons of God, and we call him Abba, Father. We understand that Romans 2.4, we're motivated to repent of our sins because it's this kindness that moves us to repent. It's his kindness. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us. It's Christ's love for us that compels us to repent and no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again. The difference is, for a legalist, he's, he fears breaking God's commandments. For a gospel Christian, his concern is breaking God's heart. Breaking God's heart. He wants to obey God. He wants to not sin. He doesn't want to sever this intimate, loving relationship that he has with the Father. Uh, uh, Illustrated with our children, you know, we discipline our children, we spank our children, and trust me, they deserve it. And if you live with us, you would say they deserve it too. They do crazy things around our house, right? They are, they're sinful monsters, and uh, Sarin blames me, and I blame myself, right? Um, and we discipline them. You know, Elizabeth is almost eight now, and she understands. That, and because of our maturity, there's a greater like, heart loyalty toward us. There's a greater love relationship between Elizabeth and us. So when we discipline her, she's crying because of the discipline. But 51%, she's crying because she understands she hurt mom and dad. Like, by her, what she said or did, she disappointed us, hurt us, she pained us. So 51%, her heart is broken because, because how that's affected us. And our relationship is hindered because of her sins. Ethan and Emma, they don't care, right? All they're concerned about is if they're going to get disciplined and how many they're going to get disciplined. I want to press this point home one day with Ethan, and so I want to show him substitutionary atonement by way of taking his discipline. I said, Ethan, today I'm going to show you grace. What is grace? Undeserved favor. You deserve discipline, but I'm not going to discipline you 
Daddy's going to get disciplined himself. I'm going to discipline myself. Because someone has to pay for this sin. Okay, so Ethan, I want you to know that I'm doing this because I love you, and this is the gospel, what Christ did for, for Daddy and Mommy. We want you to believe this. So I disciplined myself, and it really hurt, right? I didn't hold back. And Ethan looked up, and he was happy. And he wasn't like, Daddy, oh, you're hurt, you're disciplined, you love me. He was like, I don't get disciplined? <laughs> this is great. That's all he cared about. He wasn't going to get disciplined. Right? That's like us in so many ways. Right? You know, are we concerned about our Christian lives? You know, why? Let me ask you, let me close our time with this. Why do you want to grow as Christians? Why do you want to stop having impure thoughts? Why do you want to stop grumbling and being anxious and be discontent? Why do you want to be a better husband or wife? Why do you want to be a better son or daughter or a better employee? Is it because the Father's love for you and you don't want to sin and somehow hinder your relationship with the Father and, and hurt Him? Or is it because you're doing it for yourself? You want to be this great Christian so that people will look up to you. You'll be in the spotlight. You can be self-righteous. You can judge other people. You can look down on other people. You can feel good about yourself. Are you doing it for God or are you, are you, are you doing it for yourself? Do you understand that as Christians, God does discipline us? Hebrews 10. Do you understand that when God disciplines us through disappointments, sorrows, and trials of life, He's doing it with tears in His eyes. He's doing it with a broken heart. And he's doing it out of love for himself and love for us because he wants us to be holy so that we might commune with him. That is the gospel for the Christian life. May God grant you faith to repent from your stubborn pride and turn to Christ and receive the grace that is in the cross, that is in the gospel so that you might live the Christian life because of the Father's love for you. Let's stand together and let's close our time in prayer. Father, we, uh, in light of the gospel, we are brought low and we um, bless your name. We experience uh, at the same time godly sorrow but also joy godly sorrow because we see the depth and the extent of our sins. So much so it corrupts every part of our being, even all our, our best righteous deeds, our best prayers, our best preaching, our best efforts are tainted with, tainted with sin. But Lord, it is intermingled with great and profound, increasing joy because in the valley of our sins we see uh, the loveliness of Christ. We see His beauty, His holiness. Indeed, your goodness is your glory. We see your kindness and love toward us in Christ. So Lord, humbly from the depths, we cry out to you and ask you that the Holy Spirit would blow our way, would Lord renew our hearts, would open our eyes, pierce through our ears and break our hearts to grasp the height, the weight, the width, the depth of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in response to that, we will live lives worthy of the cross. We thank you for this day. In your name we pray. Amen.